All right, we're recording. Welcome back to the Girl at the Game podcast, the sports podcast by women for everyone in partnership with CLNS Media. As always, we are your hosts, Gabrielle and Al, and we are joined by the Barnacle Brothers, who are superstars in both the sports world and now getting into true crime with their new docuseries, This is Robbery, that came out on Netflix at the beginning of April. This is such a treat for us because we both totally binged the series and we're huge fans. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us. I don't know if Superstar is kind of a heavy crown to wear, but we tried. <laughs> I just have to point out to our listeners that you're currently wearing a Woo Sox cap. We just love to see that because Polar Park opened officially yesterday and it's just Amazing to see people supporting our minor league teams, especially after Major League Baseball cut 42 of them. So uh, just putting it out there for everyone listening, support your minor league teams, go to minor league games, spend $9 on French fries like I did yesterday. We were told prices were reasonable, were they not? Um, so I just, yeah, before, before we get into the actual topic at hand, I just have to point out, I heard that tickets to Polar Park were $10 and then I went yesterday to look around at the food kiosks because... Apparently, I just didn't want to eat media food for some reason. And I decided to get French fries and they were $9.25. And that's more than they cost at Fenway Park. How much did it cost that you're doing an analysis on all lives of the I'm vegetarian. So I always, um, I always kind of evaluate the vegetarian options at whatever ballpark options? I go to. She has like a ranking system. I do. What were the veggie options at Polar Park? You have a ranking system? Well, I just, I, you know, I judge teams and franchises and ballparks based on, or any, any sporting arena. She lived in LA. She's so Hollywood on us. No, that's what you have to do. What, you know, I, it's, what? I grew up kosher and then I became vegetarian when I was young. So for me, it's about like how accessible is your ballpark to people with different eating habits. And in Massachusetts, you know, a lot of places are just going to kind of tell you to like fuck off and eat a lobster roll, which quite literally happened to me at a Boston restaurant one time. I was like, do you have any vegetarian options? And the waitress looked me dead in the eye and said, we have a lobster roll. And I, I was like, that's, that's not anywhere near what I, what I was asking for, but Polar Park's food is amazing. They have nachos in a helmet and like nice nachos, you know, pulled chicken. They had a, a veggie option. They have veggie burgers. Fenway does not have a veggie burger and hasn't since the 2017 season. This is something I am weirdly passionate about, yeah. but I just believe that everyone should be able to eat good food at a ballpark, especially for how much you're paying to go to a ballpark. What is the worst one? Yeah. What's the worst? Um, for the quality of the Oakland Coliseum, they shouldn't be charging $14 for a veggie burger. But then again, Fenway Park if got rid of theirs. No, Oakland's up. Plus, yeah, that, that park is off. Just it's it's true. I always tell people that ballpark looks like if the Transformers from that Michael Bay movie were made of concrete. That's that's my judgment of Oakland Coliseum. During a game there, I mean, like, there's no one there ever. Oh yeah, I I was there as a guest of the Red Sox for a game in 2019, and we were sitting right behind the visiting dugout. And I randomly, like, I didn't live there. I didn't know anybody there, but my friend and I ran into somebody that I knew from Boston, just at that series who lived in San Francisco. 
So we went to sit and talk to him for five minutes in his section. And his section was literally him, three other people, and then like 80 empty seats. And a ballpark attendant came up to us and was like, you need to go back to your seats. And I was like, why? Because I'm taking so much space from literally nobody. I just hate unnecessary stuff like that. I And Eck is a king there though. Eck is the best. When I first started at Nesson, I was a production assistant at Nesson. It was my internship, how I kind of got to know people there and then later came back as a writer. But literally my first role, I was Tom Karen's assistant and kind of just hung around with Eck in between games. But if you think he's funny on the broadcast, you should see him during the game behind closed doors when it's just TC, Eck, Steve Lyons, or Jim, like whoever they're watching the game with. It's just the, the, the things I have heard in that room. I just, I wish I could repeat them. What's his new one? His new one is a new pair of shoes when the guy gets a strikeout. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys caught last night's game. Ellis Burks was on the broadcast. I guess he was filling in for Remy or something. And he, at the beginning of the game, he turns to Eck and he goes, Eck, I watched a lot of games in preparation for this. And I need to know what you're saying. What are shoes? We did a piece for Major League Baseball on Eck. I don't even know if they ever used it. Uh, oh my God, that's but, criminal if they didn't. But, uh, yeah, I, I need to see that. It's our own work, but I'll tell you right now, it's very good because Eck is in it and was amazing. And we did the interview like in 10 minutes upstairs in the booth with like, a, I was like, put a blanket behind him. And I was thinking I was nervous for this. I was so nervous for that. And he was so good. And he is, they mentioned us yeah. during a broadcast, like in the sixth inning, they mentioned this, the Netflix thing. And we're like, same that epic moment, huge. Oh my God, I can't believe they're talking about us. We're so excited. That, that, I feel like, Al, that kind of reminds me of uh, Girl at the Game got a shout out in the Boston Herald. And um, I made her go with me on like a walking tour of the Fenway area to find a place that sold Boston Herald's like on paper so that I could find one because it was the first time. Like on paper. <laughs> I, feel like, I was like, we need to go buy a newspaper. We ended up at this random gas station on Boylston Street, like across from kind of the Gate K area of Fenway and Ipswich and all of that. And I bought four newspapers and she has a picture of me on her phone looking at her because I found out that four newspapers cost $20. I spent $20 on Boston Herald. $5 Right? Uh, they're trying to keep our friends employed, okay? <laughs> I used to go to that gas station all the time. I was uh, at a clubhouse attendant, and I used to gas it. Like, you would have to go there for, like, knickknacks and whatever. I use nice salad all the time in, like, regular day life to describe, like, a guy's hair. I'm like, oh, he's got, he's got, I said it the other day in front of my wife. She was like, she was like is that? Do you guys follow that Twitter account, Eckisms or the Actionary? There's a, literally an account. It's not affiliated with him, but I think it's called Actionary, and it just tracks all of his different terminology. It's amazing. They'll just like they'll tweet his quotes during games. They'll just define like all of his stuff. It's the best. My most prized bobblehead that I've acquired, like from work and stuff, is Mookie Betts. That wicked long at bat. And then Eck just goes. Oh, the Grand time. Slam. Yeah, the Grand Slam. It's time to party. And the bobblehead, you press a button, it's Mookie and it's Eck. I have this audio. It's time to party. And I'm just like, this, like, bury yeah. me with this my thing. My son broke that. It was on, it was at the, yeah, I had it and the bat broke. 
Oh no. Those bats always break. I like, I bought Gorilla Glue. I bought the Gorilla Glue with like the specifically pointed tip for very intricate gluing. And I, I, I glue everything back in. We've been lucky enough to go to a lot of all-star games and I don't know why forever we would keep the bobbleheads and stuff in the box and go with me. Oh yeah. They were like, what are we doing? Let's take these out and put them up. They're cool. So we have like these random, I have uh, like a Jim Edmonds. We have, uh, we've got some very random all-star members from dating back to 1996. That is so cool. I, I love that stuff. I mean, I have like every Star Wars night that they do. So I have like the Xander Bogarts where he's a Jedi, but I will say huge missed opportunity by the Red Sox that they never did either Boba Betts or Wookiee Betts. Like there were so many good Star Wars puns. That Why are we talking about Mookie? We're just... Because it's, he's the ex that we cannot get over. Uh, so no. you can never, yeah. I had some, at a party once and someone had a great line on Pedro Martinez. The woman had seen Pedro in Boston, like across the street at a restaurant. And I said, this was like probably five or six years ago. I said, what was it like to see him? She goes, I was like seeing an ex-boyfriend. It was like, just here's this guy that we, we knew so well and I haven't seen him in five or six years and there he was. But for with Mookie, it's like an ex-wife. It's like a contentious situation. So, and he left you and married a billionaire and then uh, won a yeah, World Series like great. five minutes he's later. Driving. He is thriving. He's, driving. he's thriving and we're just trying to survive with a bullpen with an over six ERA in the month of May. So yeah. and not only so, that, but we're recognizing where we went wrong in the relationship and just having so much regret. <laughs> we have number 99. We have Verdugo. He's he's Verdugo's number. Yeah, that's the same. There was three, well, there was three days in a row that people were like, he's like Mookie. That one robbery in the outfield and then that one like cannon of a throw and people were like, oh, maybe he is Mookie Betts. And Mookie Betts. Somebody last night, because I said something about, you know, Cora Poor was dude, talking. it's not his fault. I know, exactly. Well, that's what I said. Some some guy on Twitter, because I tweeted how like, you know, in Cora's post game last night, he was talking about how Renfro is one of the best right fielders in the game, which like, uh, um, okay, that's, oh, yeah. I, I guess it's nice that his dad is proud of him on Zoom, but <laughs> You know, the like the shadow of Mookie is just always looming large. The same way, you know, every time somebody like biffs it in center field, Remy starts talking about Jackie Bradley Jr. Like that's just what's going to happen for the next 10, 15, 30, 100 yeah. years because he, this is the Babe Ruth of our lifetime. Yeah, don't say that about Mookie. Just got to get the next room. Oh, yeah. I know. Uh, I, I know. The day that the curse of the, the curse of the Bambino wasn't even in uh, the nomenclature of uh, Boston until about the 80s. Yeah, well, I think it was like Shaughnessy kind of coined it, you know, with all of his. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I thought it had been around for a while. I don't know. It was born in 1984. I so. mean, when they when they do the uh, like the 04, the 04 official World Series film, you know, when they're talking about 1946 and they say like, this was our year, this was our year, this was our year. You know, I, I feel like in retrospect, people kind of string those all together and they look at it and they're like, well, how do we get to game seven of the World Series multiple times in the last 86 years? <laughs> And like, there has to be something you pinpoint, but uh, you know, it's kind of like when you are with somebody every day, so you can't really see them aging, but then you look at a picture from 15 years ago and you're like, oh my God, my mom looked so young 15 years ago. Like, obviously now we look back and it kind of feels like that was- Yeah, did you tell her that on Mother's Day? Did you say? (laughs) My mom looks like she's 35, so she's great. She's great. Was Gambin there yesterday? Gambin was there. So they did this cool thing for the pregame ceremony. I don't know if this was on Nesson. I know the game was on Nesson, but they basically had four or five first pitches thrown out simultaneously. So it was Jim Lonborg, Gedman, Tiant, Rice, and Pedro. And they all came out and they were all introduced, but then they each either threw out or caught a first pitch. 
to somebody from like either the Massachusetts government or like a first responder or whatever. And that was really cool. And then they had, um, Kuzi was supposed to just say play ball, but instead he ended up making like a three minute speech, which was adorable, but also very stressful to watch a 92 year old man stand on a field in the wind and worry that he's going to get blown away. It's not a big guy. Yeah, no, not a big guy. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was, it was so nice. And it really, I mean, if, if the seating capacity was bigger, that's a major league ballpark. It's state of the art. It's gorgeous. Worcester loves baseball. Like I remember when I was doing covering like high school sports and stuff for Mass Live, and they opened up an office in Worcester, in the Bravehearts. Where the, like there is such baseball culture there. It's it's. I think I'm, I'm. I don't know. I'm excited for Worcester. Blackstone Valley. I don't know if you guys know this, but in the early days of the National League for Major League Baseball, before the Red Sox, before the American League even existed, there was a National League team in Worcester for three seasons called the Worcester Worcesters. I know that because I think I scroll through your Twitter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know a lot. <laughs> of course, yeah. The Worcester Worcesters. And there was like a few other, what was it? Providence Grays. There was a Rain. There was a- they had the, the Troy Trojans. And so then this is like my favorite thing I've ever heard. Basically, in like the 1880s for like these three seasons, they were in the National League. They snitched on the Cincinnati Reds because the Reds were selling beer at their games, which was illegal. So they got the Reds kicked out of the league. Then they had like the worst attendance. They had a game with literally six fans in attendance in 1882. So they got kicked out of the league and they were replaced with the Philadelphia Phillies, who are now the oldest continuous franchise in Major League Baseball because they've been the Philadelphia Phillies since 1883. The Reds came back. The Philadelphia A's. That was later because that was the American League. And then they went, uh, you know, and now they might not even be the Oakland A's. Who knows? They're a- yeah. There's a great book called um, The Big Show. And the last name, the photographer's, or the author's last name is Conlon. And it's all these old-timey photos from, like, 1880s and 90s. It's fascinating, early baseball. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to check that out because I have a bookshelf right behind me. It's all baseball books. <laughs> well, this one. I would love one, like, to see. That one's really, it's a super cool book. The guy hit 380. He's, like, 5'8", 200 pounds. You're like, what? Yeah, it was a pro athlete. Well, you look at the swings, you're like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's not really the same yeah. game. See, Catcher's on, yeah. standing up. These guys were drunk too. Submar- submariners after drinking whiskey and eating steaks all night. And then you just go out there, throw submariner pitches, like whop somebody in the face, you know, there's a bunch of books on early baseball that, that is, they're fascinating. Like just the whole different stuff, lifestyle these guys led. Oh yeah. Uh, I have, I have a bunch of them over here. Cause when I lived in LA, my dad would randomly just mail baseball books to my, uh, to my house as like, I guess it was his way of saying he missed me. Cause I would come home and there would just be like a box like this big with like six giant old baseball books in it. So this went like way off the rails really fast in an amazing, amazing way. But can we talk about this as a robbery? Yeah, sure. If somebody hasn't seen the documentary yet, which they obviously should, because it's fascinating and you guys did an amazing job on it. And Al and I both like binged the crap out of it. My parents <laughs> binged it. If someone hasn't seen it though, can you give them like a three sentence background on the, the case that inspired the series and that has kind of held Boston in brawl for about 30 years though? Yeah, so it's a four-part series. It's on Netflix streaming now. It's called This is a Robbery. Uh, It's about um, an art robbery that happens on St. Patrick's Night, really the 17th into the 18th, when two 
thieves dressed as police officers go in the back door of the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum, not too far from Fenway Park, and uh, subdue the guards and steal half a billion dollars worth of art and spear it away into the night, never to be seen again. Not the art, uh, nor them. Uh, nobody's ever been caught. Nobody's ever been arrested for it, which is the same thing as being caught. Uh, and uh, the art, there's never been a verified proof of life of any of the art since March 18, 1990. And there's a $10 million reward out there for it. I actually grew up right down the street from the museum. I grew up going there with my mom as a kid. She absolutely loves it there. Like they, before COVID, they would go, you know, a couple of times a year. And you guys grew up in Massachusetts too. So, you know, I feel like everybody who grew up in Massachusetts in the nineties was just kind of in awe and in shock, you know, by this event and just grew up talking about it. So, but it's been, you know, 30 plus years now. So what made you want to make a documentary about it? I know you guys were researching it for a long time, but what made you want to do a docuseries about this after all this time? Um, we were making a lot of stuff for ESPN around, you know, baseball and we were traveling a ton and we would always come back to family to do either work or to go to a game. And we were kind of, I think we were strolling home from a game or to we parked the car back there sometimes. And we had always known about the robbery, but I hadn't really heard anything about it. We hadn't heard anything about it for a while. And we went by the museum and we started talking about it, thinking about it. And we said, this is a really great story. How come no one's done this? So we started developing this like in earnest probably in 2015, 2016. And we were only the baseball guys, only the sports guys. And so we couldn't really get a look on making this. And we determined the best way to start making it was just to start making it. And we sat down with a bunch of former reporters and uh, people who used to work at the Globe where our father worked. And they sat with us and told us what they knew. And that ended up turning into a sizzle reel. That sizzle reel we took to Jean Rosenthal at Tribeca uh, Pictures. And she became attached. And then went to Netflix eventually through a winding path. And they were like, this is a fantastic story. Don't know why it hasn't been told. Go tell it. The fascinating part of the story, though, is not just that the artwork went missing, it's all the characters in this 31-year kind of arc of history, more than 31 years, it kind of predates, and even in the series, you go back into what seems like ancient history now. But it's the characters that come out through Boston, both in the crime world, in this kind of blue blood world that ran the museum, and how different Boston was then and how it's changed a little bit. And so, that was a modern part of the story that I thought we, we kind of attached to and think why Netflix went for. Do you remember the question? I know. <laughs> I don't even remember the question. I was just kind of listening to you. I'm just thinking now about how much Boston, Boston has changed, you know, since I was a kid. I was born in 1993. So even from then to now, just like how different Boston is. And I think you guys do a really great job of highlighting that in the series too you did a really great job of showing that grit of that era, everything from just the way it looked to the kind of characters. I think that obviously still exist, you know, you'll find some of them at a Red Sox game. Sometimes they're the ones who've had somehow managed to trick the beer vendors into selling them, you know, 15 Sam Adams. And they're just screaming with those heavy classic Boston accents. If you, if you're from Boston, you watch the series, you'll be like, Oh, I know. I know. (laughs) 
That's my cousin. It wasn't opening week. It wasn't opening day. But it was the opening weekend series at Fenway this year. Some one of these characters had gotten. They found out where the SFX mic was for WEI, and the guy was sitting right underneath it in the eighth and ninth inning. And it was hilarious. The guy was doing the game. You couldn't hear. Uh, you couldn't hear anybody else except for him. It was, in, it was one of the most incredible experiences. I've got to go find the audio. It was so funny. The guy was calling the game. He's like, that's a strike. Hey, Blue, that's a strike, kid. Obviously, we want people to be at full capacity when it's safe to do so. But one of my favorite things about covering games so far this season has been that because there are so few people in the ballpark, if somebody shouts something, everyone can hear it. You know, uh, and so there have been like quite a few moments of just like massive profanity on the Nesson broadcast and there's nothing they can do about it because it's just like some random fan being like, hey, fuck you, Adovino. 2009 All-Star Game? 2008 All-Star Game? Was it 08? Yankee Stadium? Old Yankee Stadium. Last It was 08. Old Yankee Stadium, last All-Star Game they ever had. It went to extra innings. And I think it went 13. And, you know, All-Star Games are long anyway. And it's like... 12, and it's not exactly avid fans that go. And we go to the game, and the place empties out. And you were able to move all the way up. And there was a guy, I'll never forget this, famously yells at, was it Juan Uribe playing third? I, if he made an all-star game, that's news to me. I forget who was playing third. I think it might have been Juan Uribe. And some dude yells, watch out for the bunt. And he moves in. And the guy, whoever, I don't even know who the, the play, bunts. He fields it, throws the first. He's like, who says fans can't affect the game? It was one of the most incredible professional experiences I've ever seen. And that game is in my heart because Tim Barnacle, our other brother, says, if there's one thing I could undo, it's that I want to see J.D. Drew pitch because he was warming up versus David Wright, who was also warming up. It was one of these epically long disaster all-star games. Oh, God. Give me who's yeah, No, Juan Uribe hit 247 that year with seven won. home runs. Who's playing third? Well, it wasn't. I'll look I, it up. It wasn't <laughs> All right, it wasn't Juan Uribe. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and all your UFC and MMA action. They've got real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. They have you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. Bet Online is the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. So before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and take advantage of the 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in on the action. And don't forget to use that promo code CLNS50 to receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. I love that we keep coming back to sports. And it's just, it's interesting. And it's a good segue to a question I had for you guys, because as you kind of mentioned, you were these sports guys. And true crime is just such like a booming multimedia genre right now. How much of an impact did that kind of have in your decision to really want to go through with this project or did it kind of give any legitimacy to like you guys pitching it? What, going into uh, like sports helping us in terms of true crime or like what? No, like making the transition and just seeing where, how popular true crime is right now and really always has been. Cause I mean, is this the first kind of, you guys really weren't in this space prior to this, were you? 
no, we, we, we had done like the most true crimey thing we had done was about a, the Hannes Wagner card, which was, you know, maybe it was trimmed or whatever um, to make the value of it go up. That was like the true crime thing that we did for ESPN, not exactly like hard hitting. But uh, we, I mean, I think when we started to research this, because like I, true crime really like, it had always been around, but it really blew up. Like there's always been like, you know, you check into a hotel room and forensic files is playing on every channel for some reason. But I know that making of a murderer, I think that came out like December, 2015. And we were already researching this. And then like, it, it was huge and everything. Um, it, it kind of, it kind of geared everything toward like what a docu-series should be. And I think definitely we took, you know, lessons from like how you make a multi-part docu-series because of, you know, usually you just make a kind of a one-off on these things. But um, something like this, it, it helped us out in terms of knowing, you know, for 31 years, that's a lot of information to be giving in, you know, 60 minutes. And so when, True crime really became a huge, huge thing on Netflix um, right around the mid-2010s. The multi-part series really gave us a boost in terms of like, oh, okay, we have more time to kind of expand out on the different avenues, you know, possibilities of, of, the, of the crime without having to like really narrow it down to like a 23 minutes with ad breaks. It looks like it was Carlos Guillen, not Juan Uribe. <laughs> I love that you just like went and looked for that. That is that is like such a thing that I would do of just needing to know this like very random fact you'd, from an all-star game. You'd be a great you'd be a great podcast producer. Yeah, I, no, not, I get too nervous, and then like I don't even know how I answered the other question. But you uh, should have, you should have heard how nervous Al and I were when we first started this thing. We can. I'll send you some links to that. <laughs> To, to, to kind of answer the question a little bit. I just answered it. No, but I'm going to answer it again. I want to re-answer it. I want to Everyone gets a turn. He gets a talking stick yeah. now. We had been, what's so weird is we, we had been in this, the sports space for only a few years when we were like, we're going to do other stuff. And we had developed a few things that never happened. And we've been developing this since like, you know, 15-ish. So it really, they overlap a lot, but it was six years before it came out. So six more years of making sports stuff. So we really, by the time it came out, we were just the sports guys. And we had to kind of like, the steel turn from McConaughey's book, Green Lights. <laughs> we had to unbreak. So good, so good. Except you can't, I listened to it and he guy talks so fast. He, we had to like unbrand and be like, yeah, we do sports, but we also do this other thing. And it's really kind of just about people. Um, and it just happens to be true crime. It wasn't like we were like trying to make something because it was true crime. Yeah, and I think in terms of, I'll answer it now again. Please. Um, uh, we had done our two bigger pieces for the sports world were about like a baseball card and then a contract. So they were like, like very like not exactly like popping headlines. The uh, A-Rod thing, right? The D Yeah, the A-Rod contract and then and then the Hannes Wagner card. So I think we were comfortable with the idea that like, you know, an art robbery, um, it's like an inanimate <laughs> We deal only in inanimate objects, apparently. Being stolen <laughs> or altered. The pitches are super warm. <laughs> hey, you have the glove, the thing with Redford. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You do have that, yeah. So inanimate objects in the sports world or Fenway area. That is, uh, 
And we found our niche right there. You have your perimeter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Got to be known for something. That's it. <laughs> it's boring. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not gonna answer it a fourth time. And you can if you want. Good. You guys can just we can just sit here and watch. This is really fun for us. It's awful. <laughs> not very pretty. so aside from not kind of having like you have four parts right to let the story really breathe and how you tell it and space it out um you're not writing it for time which is like really difficult to do with like broken up by ads but beyond that in terms of the researching and like the reporting for this what was one thing that maybe given your background in sports and kind of only dealing with that stuff that you just never ever would have anticipated Honestly, you know what really helped uh, was uh, working at Fenway Park. Um, working at Fenway Park is like you get to see, it's like a little hub. You get to know everybody around the park and a lot of like ex-police officers or, you know, ex-county clerks. Um, and you're picking up a lot of information that way. And when we went out to research it, a lot of it was, um, I guess what they were called like leather shoot research, which is like you're walking to the county clerk's office because they didn't digitize like a court document from 1988 um, and being able to walk in and be like you know hey mary from you know who now works at fenway sent me was a very good shorthand so boston in terms of working as a small neighborhood it's like a city that works like a small neighborhood uh it's it was to our benefit a lot and then it was also you know it could get a little petty sometimes but um, <laughs> a lot of the research was like we pitched it as an eight-part series, and Netflix was like, no, we think it's a four. And we were like, totally, totally, four, yeah, whatever you say. Um, a lot of, most of the research was about, like, trying to hone the story to a beginning, middle, and end that doesn't have an ending. And the middle is, like, conjecture. So we need to, like, basically go through every single possible theory and and vet it down to make sure that what we were putting on camera was what we thought was like, you know, the best, the most likely scenario. I was going to say the best case scenario, but I guess the best case scenario is the art isn't stolen. So <laughs> right. uh, the most likely scenario. And I think we did that. I mean, it was, it's, it's frustrating. Sometimes you, you research everything and we don't have a narrator in the thing, in the, in the thing, in the four part series. So you know, the stuff that we learned that we thought was really interesting, we couldn't really push onto interviewees because it was either like a first, a lot of them were first-hand accounts or um, just coverage of basic facts from lawyers or, or cops. So pushing information onto them for them to tell us back wasn't going to work. So a lot of the information that we found that we thought was like super interesting, it was like too clunky. We couldn't put it in there. And at the end of the day, we just, you know, would it have mattered to a guy who's, you know, living in Des Moines, Iowa, whether like there are like five or six paintings missing in the blue room? No, it only really matters which one like went missing and is still missing today. So, so what's know, a good example of that? A good example of that? Um, there's a lot. A good example would be that the, like the guard on duty that night, he said he found a pound of weed about a year after the crime. Like he just, it was on his doorstep. Like yeah, Yeah, and he said, oh, you know, I always thought that might've been the thieves, um, which is like horribly incriminating. And then he has like, just, and he's like, you know, he has no money. And then all of a sudden he has money to go 
to go a cross-country road trip. Now, he has the answers to all this. And then, you know, so we were like, it doesn't matter if he has answers to it or if it's like he can explain it. Like, then we need to, like, explain where he got the money. And, like, it, that's, like, just a black hole that, like, we couldn't find any evidence against him. So we just didn't put it in. And then, you know. But he's so he, sketchy. He's he, so sketchy. That is very <laughs> sus, as, I the, have, as the kids I have say. a lot of empathy for him. I just for sure for sure I can I, I can totally see you. I can't see myself in that situation no, necessarily no. but I remember not to keep like I remember so I like working at Fenway Park you'd be there you'd be there late at night like like 2 a.m when you leave and if some guy in a police uniform walked up to me and was like hey I need to get in here I'd be like yeah sure I 100% let the guy in it was yeah. like it was like the scene from the town. Like it was like they they say it was yeah. cops. They say it was cops. I found so actually so like weird correlations between this documentary and the town that make me now like wonder if the town like based a lot of <laughs> its story this, off yeah, of this so robbery. This, yeah, this had happened before. Um, right. Um, people walk uh, dressed as police officers committing crime. It was like a, a Boston's like unique for like art crime in the 1980s to like and bank hold, robberies. Like, yeah, and then and bank robberies were crazy. But a lot of people were knocking over Brinks trucks, either dressed as police officers or police officers themselves. Actually, there was one instance in 1981 where these uh, in Gloucester, there was a raid on this uh, on a bank robber's house. And the two cops go in and they see the plans to an actual bank robbery there and they take it and they do it. They do the bank robbery in, 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 yeah, in Gloucester. And it all stems from this like, actually this famous robbery that um an ex-baseball player was involved in in the 60s early 60s in um in uh, just outside cape cod where two police two police officers pull over a prince truck they get the guys out and they they rob it without firing a shot it was a big it was like a big moment and that one's actually technically unsolved uh still too it was like huge in, and in a the, baseball player was involved yeah, yeah. Um, your your guy, uh, 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 Dan Perry's guy, the hitter. Oh, pro learner. Pro learner. You guys know pro learner story. Such an interesting story. No. Pro learner was like a pretty good. He's from uh, Rhode Island, Providence. Uh, so he was a pretty good minor league hitter. Uh, he hit three hundred a couple times, but he also had a proclivity to hang out with like wise guys, and he ends up. Um, he ends up being involved in a, a murder of a hitman. He was a, he murdered a guy for Raymond Patriarca, and it's actually one of the reasons why Raymond goes to uh, prison in the 1960s. Oh my God, he's from my hometown. He's from Brookline, Massachusetts, yeah. and he yeah. signed with the Washington Senators. This is so insane. Yeah, so to give proper attribution here, Dan Barry at the New York Times worked at the at Providence Journal for a long time, and knows a lot of these types of stories and some of them kind of show up in bottom of 33rd his seminal work on minor league baseball and, and new england baseball but this story he put in the times and it's a fantastic overlapping story between crime and baseball um yeah it, it should be a movie it links directly back to the gardner robbery because one of the um one of the participants in the robbery or one of the planners they think of the of the crime was loved loved like loved the the brinks truck police officer robbery in 1963 <laughs> like 
like we love Mookie Betts, you know, it was just like, oh my God, this is like, it's just, it was just ideal, fantastic. You couldn't stop talking about it. And then, you know, 28 years later, he's involved in this, allegedly involved in this crime. Mm-hmm. Although I don't think I get the fame when he's dead. So fascinating character. My mind is like totally blown right now. Um, so I have kind of a question to go back to the actual documentary, the series itself. Um, you know, you guys talk about how there wasn't exactly a ton of footage for you to use. So you did reenactments, which is not typically the norm for this kind of situation. And some of the reenacted scenes are really hard to watch because the content is obviously upsetting. You know, the guard being duct taped and tied up in the basement, stuff like that. Coming from a world of sports and entertainment, coming into true crime, what was it like to create those scenes? Was it hard to kind of obviously putting it together at the end is looks a lot different. Kind of like when you see, you know, the Avengers and in the pre-production, they're just bouncing around in front of a green screen, but was it upsetting and kind of traumatizing to, you know, be like duct taping this guy to a pole and, you know, recreating this upsetting content? I'm sorry, but that picture was hilarious. Like the fits from the nineties and then just seeing him tie dye and, you know, Oh God. With the fanny pack, he looked like an extra from Clueless. The fanny pack, date. the fanny pack is amazing. He had it weed is so that. cool. He weed. He had weed in the he fanny was... pack. He was scared that <laughs> the cops were gonna get on scene. He had Honestly, I feel like getting high in the gardener would be a really exciting experience, just because like uh, there's so much artwork around that you can just dude, kind of trip out and stare at beautiful works dude, of art. Yeah, this dude had the chillest job he, until he, he didn't. He does it on the night before in the CCTV tape. Your yeah, guy comes in, then he leaves, and then you can see him step back, and there's like just a huge, huge like chimney smoke that comes up onto the screen, and then he's coughing. And yeah, you wonder what that was. A lot of the guards that we interviewed talk about how like otherworldly it is to be in that museum at night. They didn't allude to their drug use, but Rick Abat, the guard, had openly spoken about his drug use while there at night. I can not imagine a more different experience but to answer kind of put the the, the previous question tell us about the with this one i'm gonna tell you about the reenactments i'm gonna actually just give you a minute to think because i know you need to focus in i think one of the biggest differences between making sports documentaries and making a documentary like this was when you're when we were making we made uh something called the deal it was on alex rodriguez's ultimately quote-unquote voided trade to the boston red sox the diciest things there were dealing with uh, the then main lawyer at Major League Baseball, who was Rob Manford, who is now obviously the commissioner, Alex's camp, and ESPN. And there was kind of these tensions around what we could and couldn't say. We ended up being able to say everything. And actually, <laughs> people were open about it. Um, but that wasn't, you know, looking back on it, it was very tense at the time. On this one, the intensity and the tenseness and, and, and the pressure comes from you know, Colin as the director had all this information on people's alleged crimes that were, you know, they're not even really alleged, they occurred, but what we could and couldn't say. And some of these people ended up getting out of jail or making it. Um, and these are not like their trades were avoided to the Boston Red Sox. They were like, they're wanted for a triple homicide. So we're already in this space of like, this is a little bit more serious than other things we have done. we had done. And I think Colin kind of really thought through what Netflix calls evocations, what obviously we call yeah. recreations. But you kind of had a vision for it, and where'd you shoot it? I'm hosting the podcast now. 
guess. Yeah. Uh, we had we we shot all of the just so the tax credit remains. We did shoot all the evocations in in the Berkshires. Um, now it wasn't upsetting to shoot all the stuff because all the all the reenactments we did were based on a either an affidavit of a witness account or a firsthand account that was told to us. So we tried to stay narrow. Like we didn't want to be like making this stuff up. Everything that like you see in the uh, in the evocations in the reenactments, like happens. Like we don't really make anything up. It's not like we're like oh this you know whatever. It's all based in some either uh, almost primarily ninety five percent no witness statement. So like we went there. It was a uh, yeah. It's an odd conversation to have to like with an actor that was like the first you know the first real reenactments that we shot like movie film stuff and i think the first shoot was like i'm gonna duct tape your face up and we're gonna go into the basement and i'm gonna duct tape you onto the pole and like i had met the kid to i don't know 30 seconds beforehand so it was a it's like an odd odd conversation to have uh and he wasn't like a professional actor he was like what are you gonna do to me and i was like hold on i'll just show you the photo so a lot of it was just trying to get the, the detail of the crime rate. So somebody who doesn't know about the crime and those who really know about the crime would have like a really accurate picture of what happened, especially that night. Two more questions kind of on the filmmaking process and I guess like the cinematography. One, you, you talk about the employees, what it was like to work in there at night and be in there. What was it like to shoot in there? And what was kind of like one of your favorite shots in the film? Because it's it's so beautiful. And I mean, the museum itself, it's it's just like how, I mean, it it speaks for itself, right? So. Uh, it was, it was, it gave us, so nobody had shot in the museum in like t- over 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid going in there and like, you're not allowed to even take cell phones. Like I would sneakily kind of, you know, in the famous courtyard, I would take my phone and I would sneakily just take like, you know, the little photo just to get the the beautiful. You look like you're like, just like totally normal too. Oh no, I mean, I was more chill, you know, when I was in there, obviously like they know people are going to do that. But uh, yeah, I remember that from being a kid because I'd go there with my mom and we would sit and sketch and stuff like that. And yeah, it was it was shooting there at night. It was you get a real different perspective on, on the robbery itself because it is it's dark in there. There are some rooms where you j- you literally can't see your your hand in front of your face. Um, yeah, it's creepy but, for sure. Yeah, it's super creepy. It's like it's like that kind of like muffled quietness where there's like a, almost like a hum to it, uh, and it's very it's very odd. It's odd being in there at night. Um, Shooting in there at night was very cool, but it definitely gave us like, a, oh man, these guys had flashlights that you you had to know exactly where you were going. You know, we got like as detail around like what was the moon phase that night? Was it over the was it over the uh, the atrium there? So how much light was there in there? There was not a lot of light that night. I'll just put in the obligatory. We were also very lucky, and and the Gardner Museum staff and, and administrators and executives were very understanding and, and let us uh, in a way get away with this. So we, we still feel lucky and appreciate them for that. Also, I'm curious because I haven't been there in a few years. Did they still have the empty frames hanging up that they had when I was a kid? You know, that I thought that was a really haunting and beautiful and kind of emotional thing that the museum did 
you know, kind of waiting for these paintings to come back that when you go there, you see a bunch yeah. of empty frames, you know, waiting for their, for their kind of centers, their hearts to come back to them. Yeah, Anne Holly, the director at the time who had retired just uh, not too long ago, um, who had only been on the job six months, that was her idea. She did that uh, pretty quickly, put the frames back up. Um, and I think it was, you know, I don't know if the, frame, if the frames were taken down and they, you know, there was just a blank spot on the wall. I honestly don't know if uh, the story would be as big as it is today. I think a lot of it is when you go in, you see the empty frame, you're like, well, what is this about? Um, but so, yeah, it was a great idea by her to keep the frames up and uh, kind of a, a lasting visual. And it really is. The museum itself is this gorgeous, if you haven't been, it's this incredible Venetian palace. It's, it's a piece of artwork itself. It's really kind of And Gardner lived there until she died, too. I mean, she was kind of this eccentric figure where she she had all I these ideas and... Then she she actually lived at the museum, which you know you think <laughs> we're talking about like how the museum's kind of creepy at night. Like I would be terrified to live there. Obviously, yeah. it was a different time, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there I'd be is. scared all the time. Yeah, it's that there was a, the, the, the director until Anne Holly uh, uh, was hired. Actually, they had like an apartment up there for the person to like live in, which is like who would ever want to? No, thank you. Your work life space would be just awful. It's like you get up in the morning and you and there's uh, uh, problems with your job immediately just because you woke up at your job. Yeah, there's like we talk about work from home during COVID and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I my my desk is in my bedroom and it's like being in that museum is probably um, crazy. But you know, real quick, just to go back to this because I can't believe how much time you guys spent researching this robbery and you, you know, you told the Amherst wire that out of all the work that you did, 90% did not make it into the series. And yeah. if there was like one thing that you wish you could have put in that you didn't, what would it be? Oh, there's like, there are a ton of storylines that are just hilarious that we could have put in. Um, if there is one little detail, I don't know. I'll just, I'll say this one just because so Miles Connor had a cougar, and, and when he went to prison, he lived with a cougar, and when he, a, like a literal, like a, a mountain lion cougar, and when he went to prison, he had to give it to a friend, and the friend rented it out for like movies and photo shoots, and one of those was a Farrah Fawcett ad that you could go look it up on YouTube in 19, like 76, Farrah Fawcett, it was a Mercury Cougar. Yeah, Mercury Cougar. And there's just Miles Connors Cougar is right there next to Farrah Fawcett. That's giving just me Tiger little... King vibes. <laughs> I know, yeah. There's a lot of stuff like that, just interesting asides that you want to get in there. And uh, about the crime itself, just the details of, of you know, how detail-oriented you get with the granular, with the, uh, the photos before you start losing people's interest. So we had to cut a lot of that out. Just picking up on the museum aspects we were talking about, Colin did a tremendous amount of work, so did the producers, um, in finding a lot of the old guards. And just the stories they would tell about being there at night was so fascinating. At one point, we had a ton of it in there. But um, there was just a tremendous amount of detail. For every detail that's in there, there's nine details behind it um, that didn't make it in. So that kind of leads to like the one final question I have about the documentary itself is that 
you guys talk to some characters like they're the collection of eccentric people you talk to who is one of your favorites like who was one of like the quirkiest people you met that just you really are taken aback by nick why don't you answer first and then i'll um obviously the character that shines through the most i think for most people uh is miles connor who's um a fascinating character he, he's not all good or all bad, but that character has, you know, he's a person. He has a lot of different facets. I, I think if there was one quote unquote regret or something that we, I would like to have done more of, it's more stuff with Miles. I don't know where it would have gone, but um, that's my answer. Yeah, Miles, very interesting. So he, li he literally lived with a horse and a cougar, had a pet alligator. He opened for the Beach Boys and Roy Orbison as like a, a singer um, in the early. That's what I'm saying. Like the singing, the, the animals, the singing, yeah. the like he really was kind of like a Tiger King, just a little yeah. less flamboyant. Yeah, there was they used to do these because it was different era, but they used to do these um, shows in Walpole State Prison, like where the families could come in and like have like a hoedown almost and Miles would play and the families would be there and there's video, we couldn't get the video in there, but there's video and Miles is playing and right down front dancing with this um, like old mom is Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. He's just like, like, like partying, like having fun. And it's just like, but it's like, there's the Boston Strangler and Walpole State Prison. There's a lot of stuff like that. And I think the guards themselves were very, the guards themselves are super quirky people who, with great, fantastic visual memories, which was, very helpful. I think you guys need to do a whole nother documentary just on Miles Connor and this this thing because I think we found your next true crime. Well, the thing with Miles, there's a darker side to the story. I mean, there's some he's been accused of some very serious crimes. Yeah. Um, and, and wasn't so, he planning on robbing the gardener too, and he just didn't end up doing it? Yeah, he used to climb uh, the trees uh, across the Fenway and look in to try to get the. Um, the guards pacing. Now, I, like how much of that is like, you know, apocryphal or like, you know, he's making up, I don't know. I mean, he's a member of Mensa. He like literally, he remembers everything and he sometimes takes facts from the past that might be in your, like in your consciousness. And he like writes a narrative around it that would be like believable. So you gotta be like careful with him on that, but he's like a very smart guy very learned. He faked his way into being a curator at the Peabody Museum in the 1980s for a little bit um, as Dr. Joseph. <laughs> so uh, yeah, an interesting, interesting cat. That's fascinating. I'm going to go into like some kind of deep dive on Boston crime. Now I'm going to learn about that pro learner guy from you know, you, you never think about that kind of stuff just happening in your own hometown. Have you read Bottom of the 33rd? Bottom of the 33rd about the longest game in, uh, yeah, at, at McCoy. I actually know the Bat Boy from that game. He now works in video for the Boston Red Sox. And he's actually oh, the good. person that gave me the tickets to that Oakland game that I was telling you about at the beginning of the story. Ooh, Billy? He's, yeah, Billy. Yeah. So we did a, a small story on Bottom 33rd. Billy's in it. And he was fantastic. Billy's um, amazing. I'm doing some of my own work, promoting my <laughs> previous work. Call That's him. what you're here for. Uh, well, this uh, is this is like perfect because, you know, we wanted to talk to you about like your other Boston work. Obviously, we're two Massachusetts girls and obviously you are two Massachusetts men. And 
I assume just based on like our conversations and the Blue Sox cap, diehard Red Sox fans. Oh, like we are. Yeah. Like (laughs) I want to hear more about like your sports work too. You know, for starters, what was it like as Red Sox fans to make the deal, you know, your A-Rod thing for ESPN? He was such a hated figure in the early 2000s. I mean, in the, in the early 2000s, all the way through his retirement, And, um, you know, now I don't know if you guys saw this, but it's like reported that Affleck and JLo are back. Benifer, yes, Benifer. I'm Um, so happy for Ben. The first Benifer after. Trying to cover it up. And then did you see the images of him driving his car? Yeah, yeah. He's like, they're in the car in Montana at the Yellowstone Club. I couldn't tell. I was like, but I don't know if you guys saw this. This video came out the other day. Paparazzi asked A-Rod. They asked A-Rod how he felt about Benifer, and all he said was go Yankees. Go Yankees. It was like, it's like a freak. You can almost, listen, A-Rod is, you know, who he is, but you can almost like see him like thinking to himself, what am I going to say when the paparazzi tells me? Of course he's thinking that. I remember, so I was sitting, when I worked in the clubhouse, this was like one story, there was, we were playing the Yankees. It was August 2006. We actually, I think we got swept. It wasn't a great series for us. Mm-hmm. But um, it's been a hard season. So anyway, we were sitting there and try, Nixon came out and he was watching the TV and A-Rod was up and I said, what do you think of this guy? And he said, I really do not like him, but wow. Is he a really good baseball player? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's about right. I feel like that's like during his playing time that what a lot of people felt about. But yeah. I feel like he he embraced, I don't know if he still does, but I feel like for a long time he really embraced kind of being the villain, you know, everything from slapping the ball out of Arroyo's mitt to that like glove in the face fight with Veritech. And now this go Yankees thing. And I remember like his final season in major league baseball, I was at what ended up being his last Fenway game of his career, you know, before they kind of put him out to pasture and he was getting up to bat and he was hitting like in the low one hundreds at that point in the season, it was like a hundred degrees outside and everyone's booing him and he's having a terrible season. So it's not like he has even any kind of anything to back up his cockiness and people are booing him. He's at, he's standing there and he just, holds up his hand to his ear as if to be like, I can't hear you. And it's like, dude, you literally struck out in like three at bats. Like you're yeah. terrible. This is, I, he just leans into it. I, you know, it's, it's tough. Like I don't like know him personally or, or anything, but it just seems like he tries to like go so hard into like what he's doing or like, like he's that guy on the pickup basketball court that is like, throwing elbows and you're like, dude, it's a pickup game. Right. Exactly. That's exactly, that's the perfect way to describe A-Rod. You know, and I think for a long time, he, he kind of, he was that guy that we all hated when we were younger, but I also think that in a way he's that guy that we love to hate because he just makes it so easy. I mean, he, his behavior, he's literally lobbing them over the plate for us to hit out of the park in terms of just everything he says, everything he does. He just like, he kind of, I think he kind of, I think a lot of it's like manufactured for that exact reason, because we just keep consuming A-Rod content. You know, yeah, it, but he hit six hundred and what fifty six home runs. runs yeah. yeah, so I mean, I don't. Alex is such. I, a, I, I'd take I'd take that trade off. He's an interesting character, but what did Veritex say to him before the fight? We don't hit two hundred hitters. Yeah, yeah, bitch. He said bitch too. <laughs> <laughs> I was just a G-rated podcast. 
And no, this is, we uh, swear <laughs> a little bit. And then I get texts from my mom being like, I really wish you wouldn't swear on your podcast. Sorry, mom. And then with the, like the movie we made about him, he wouldn't be in it. He's around the game now. So I've run into him a few times. He's very nice. He's smart. He's got a lot going on. Like I like him at Shark Tank, but he's always the guy who slapped the ball out of Arroyo's hand. Yep. He's always that guy who, like, you know, what did he do when there was the infield fly? And he, you know, around second, and he was like, I got it. He's always that guy. And I just, I don't know. And he, now on top of that, like, I feel like a lot of people had done a 180 on him and were kind of like, you know what? Like, I like him now. He's really. No, yeah. and then you like him and then you feel like it's. But then he cheats on, but then he, but then he like cheats on JLo allegedly. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Same thing. Southern charm. Yeah. Like. It was the weirdest thing around New York, like two, three years ago. It's like switched back the other way, where Derek Jeter wasn't liked yeah. for a yeah. while here, so. and A Rod was liked, and it was like, where am I? This is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. It's like, oh, A Rod's with J Lo, and he's great, and he's he's on ESPN, and he's on Shark Tank, and he's doing good, and and. And, and Jeter's ruining the Marlins and <laughs> off the team and he's trading all these guys and he's got no respect for you know the game or whatever. And he's like, Oh my god, this is like I've entered a Twilight new- Zone, Twilight it's Zone. It's like Bizarro World from Seinfeld. It's like I was like, What is going on? He's just he, he's a fascinating character in American life and definitely in baseball. Life. And he'll be around for a long time. Oh yeah, because you can't get rid of him. He keeps coming back. <laughs> he's trying to buy the timber walls, but that's gonna fall apart and are you I mean, in Massachusetts he, right now? Huh? I don't want to pointing at the camera. Point the, yeah. Point the camera. Hmm. Are, you, are you are you both in Massachusetts right now? Yeah. Yeah. You guys are gonna have to come come through and we'll go to a game. I'm up there all the time. My in-laws are what do we call him the what do we call the mascot? It's a smiley. Smiley. Mascot. Just smiley. smiley. Okay. Yeah. I actually read a really fascinating thing about, you know, how the team name and the team mascot came to be and like kind of the brand designers that they use. I'll find it and I'll send it to you guys. But it was talking about kind of like the different names that they went through when they were considering what they were going to name the team. Um, they thought about kind of not like directly honoring Pedroia, but kind of the grit of, you know, a player like him. They were going to call him the dirt dogs. Then they were going to call him the gritty kitties, which just seems a little weird yeah that actually for my early team i mean obviously nobody wants to be like i'm going out i'm going out and see the gritty kitty stuff yeah um so you know they did this branding stuff with the san diego uh i just pulled it up a a san diego design company called brandios you know they went through all this kind of stuff about like they had fans submit nicknames and then they were also doing their own kind of internal stuff they were going to call them the wicked worms um the night owls I like Wicked Worms. I like worms, Wicked Worms too. Wormtown Brewery. It's like that's exactly it's more why. historic too, and it's just like it's quirky. It's oh minor league quirky. Change the name every three seasons for more ads. So. And then they considered like naming we, them the Green yeah. Bananas because they were unripened fruit, not quite ready for Fenway. I thought that was kind of cute. That's too much to think about. That like the Wicked yeah. Worms, like literally like a. It's like a DUI stop for a police officer. It's like we got a wicked worm here, a 1080. Team name. What's the wicked Wicked worms? Yeah. I learned that the reason that they ended up with Smiley is because Worcester is the birthplace of the smiley face. And I didn't know that, but it was first drawn by an advertising Uh, executive by the name of Harvey Ball in 1963. And so they kind of they kind of 
Yeah. Forrest Gump ran across the country. Yes, exactly. And then gave it to a a nice day. And here's yellow. I can't sell yellow. I can't sell yellow. And then he made a a billion dollars. I get all my my information from early 90s movies. I'm obsessed with Forrest Gump. (laughs) I think it's like the coolest thing ever. Um, And also, though, I learned that Casey at the Bat was written in Worcester. Didn't know that one either. So when you go to Polar, they have all of this cool historical stuff. Um, They've got like a wall of all of the programs from Pawtucket, like year by year, which is really cool to see like young Buckholtz and Lester and Pedroia, you know, they've got an area for the Negro Leagues. They've got like a Ted Williams statue. They've got, it's it's really like a museum, which makes a ton of sense because their team president, Dr. Steinberg is like a total baseball historian. But then they have a statue of, you know, Casey at the bat and the poem on a plaque on the wall. And I guess it's because it was written in Worcester in the 1800s. And I had no idea. I think that's like, it's amazing. There's so much baseball history in Worcester. Whoa. Whoa. And James Taylor sang the national anthem. Yeah, he did with his son, which I thought was lovely. Okay, so you guys (laughs) brought up your parents. So I, I need to know, like, what was it like kind of growing up with? journalist father how did that shape you guys i mean obviously it did you're storytellers now by trade right but did was that always the plan was that always like what was it like growing up seeing your parents working and no i don't you know it's strange because everybody's like you know how was it with your dad as a journalist he was just kind of dead to us he was uh, the guy who brought us to baseball games and none of them brought their work home but uh Certainly my mom didn't, but my dad definitely brought us to work. He would, uh, <laughs> he would, uh, and he did it to my little brother even more. He'd get him out of school, and then he did this to us a bunch. He'd get us out of school, some like bogus thing, like uh, they have to get their tonsils out, which like happened eight times. And How many tonsils guys, did you have? Yeah, I know. They like, kept finding They grow them. back. They, they grow kept back, finding yeah. them. Oh, my God, yes. Grandma so, dying. Grandma, yes. She just died the other we're an eccentric family okay we have a lot of grandparents yeah Yeah. no he and he would say he would say listen i didn't lie (laughs) grandma did die it just happened eight years ago um so he would take us into the city when he did like he'd have to go like talk to somebody interview him and we'd sit in the car and then we'd usually end up going this always happened like april may like june and then we'd end up going into the ballpark um i think my dad thinks he's like he might still get the call to play left field because he gets to a ballpark like five hours yeah, before the game. Isn't like, his profile yeah. picture on Twitter Ted Williams still? Yes. He's like, well, we yeah. haven't really touched even on any of our super fandom, but it's beyond, beyond. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It was like five hours before batting practice. I've been at Fenway. It's like a problem. Three in the morning, two in the morning. <laughs> I've been there at six in the morning. Yeah. yeah so during the playoffs, like, you brought up the Dr. Charles and Larry, like talk about a change of from growing up when they bought the team, like our whole lives are totally different now because there's a whole month of the season or of the year that you can't really plan anything. So October is just like a no fly zone. Yeah. And our plans are always like subject to change. I happen to be get married in the month of October. And there was just an asterisk, like there was a, a verbal agreement between my wife and I, look, if we go deep into the playoffs, we're going to have a wedding. Kind of like Verlander and Kate Upton, you know, when they were supposed to get married and then they missed their own like rehearsal dinner or something because of the World Series and they showed World up Series. for their wedding and like everyone else had had the party without them. 
My wife was eight months pregnant in 2018 with our first beautiful daughter, Tessa. And I was like, I, LA, World Series, I gotta go. And she was like, well, yeah, it's fine. It's too far. So I was like, don't worry, nobody's going. Like, it's just gonna be me. I'm gonna go for a game. I'll fly right back. Like, and then Nick came, and then my brother was there, and then my dad was there. And it was like a family affair, and she was the only one not there. I had a FaceTime in with her, and I was like, it's kind of the same. We had a little six month old. I, not, I don't know if I'm proud. Not We're good fathers. But we, we, I, left, I left mom and baby. I was like, sorry, I gotta go. Well, no, I mean, this is, this is what you do when you're a Red Sox fan. I mean, it's like, remember in, in fever pitch when, when, um, you know, Drew Barrymore is kind of, they're fighting when they're breaking up and she's like, I understand, but how far does it go? Grandma don't die because the Yankees are coming to town or, you know, don't go into labor because the angels need me, you know, and it's like that whole thing. But this is like, this is like what people do. One of my favorite things I heard was when Gordon Hayward's wife was oh, going, God. Oh the, God. her, her fourth pregnancy was lining up exactly with the playoffs and Gordon was at the bubble and throughout the whole season it was said that he was going to leave the bubble for the birth of the son and then he missed some time with an injury and then comes back all of a sudden and now all of a sudden like his mind changes so someone it was literally overheard in Boston you can't make this shit up I was in Watertown and it's the most Boston <laughs> this man, we've ever done this man says I don't know I kind of respect that he's willing to miss the birth of his first son if they have a shot at the playoffs and he's like, what his friend says, what the fuck? Who cares? I would do that as a fan. (laughs) (laughs) This fucking city. Things things overheard at the Arsenal mall DMV. Oh my God. That's where I I failed my permit test for the first time on my 16th birthday. That was heartbreaking. I live in Watertown five minutes, a five minute walk from Arsenal street. (laughs) Right. That's where the Nesson, the Nesson studio is too. Yeah. Wait, so, okay, so you guys were at the 2018 World Series in L.A. Um, were you at the game, like the, the extra inning game? Yes. I was there, too, with Dr. Charles, with Dr. Steinberg, and we're sitting there, and they had put, like, all of the, like, visiting, um, anybody who, like, had been in, like, Red Sox people who were there, but, like, I guess, like, weren't, you know, John Henry or whatever, we were all in the same section um, of, like, the right field deck. And we're sitting there and like everyone knows that we're the Boston section because, you know, we're all sitting there in Red Sox stuff. And it's like, you know, there were like reserved seats and whatever. And there's like this random Dodgers fan in our section. Tag is still on the shirt. Like he clearly bought it at the team store for the game, like classic bandwagon fan. The game starts. He's getting progressively drunker by the seventh inning. He's like, oh, you fucking Boston fans. You all are all the same. You suck. This game sucks. Your team sucks. You're fake. Like you classic, right? They stop serving in the seventh inning, but the game goes to extras by the 15th inning. He is sober and apologizing for his own behavior. And the game still had three innings to go. The roller coaster. It's oh my god! And I'm like team. FaceTiming my sister and my dad at home, and it's four in the morning in Boston, and my dad's like standing there, loopy, like dancing around the living room. That was a, that was a long one. I think that was yeah. I had landed that morning on that red eye, and then I was like, I just was like, okay, went to my brother was already out there, our other brother Tim, and. <laughs> I was like, well, the games, I, I was like, I'll just stay up. I'm not taking a nap. I'm going to be yeah. fine. The world human beings. They have a nine-minute game I can last. And then, like, in the 17th, I was like, come on. We got to pull this Tim Barnacle's two biggest regrets are that he didn't get to see J.D. Drew pitch in that, in that 
08 All-Star team. <laughs> he didn't go to Houston for the ALCS because he was two games shy of going to every single playoff game. Oh, my God. I was like, but it's Houston. So did he miss JBJ's Grand Slam off Ozuna? Uh, so he must have. Yeah. Been. Was that in Houston? Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. And I, Because I remember just being so thrilled. My wife knew that like yeah. we had serious problems. We got met. We met during a down. Like we met after the 13 World Series. Like mm. months later. So 14, bad. 15, 16, 17. So 18. I don't go out for games three and four. And game four is the Evaldi game. And I'm up at three thirty in the morning. I'm like on like three different travel websites, like canceling flights, booking flights. We're up. We're down. We're gonna. And I, and I end up. She's like, "What is the matter with you?" I'm like, "Lost." But that means we're gonna clinch. That means we were gonna win in five. So I end up going out the next morning. She's like, "What is? You're gonna fly out for one?" I flew out. We went to the game. I flew home after the game. The next morning, like six in the morning. So I used to live on Sunset in West Hollywood. So I lived like exactly five miles down sunset from Chavez Ravine and from the ballpark. And I didn't want to park because, you know, I just like the Dodger stadium parking is just a nightmare to get out. Uh, so yeah. I took an, I took an Uber from my apartment and the Uber Five, was away, two and a half hours. right. Well, so I'm sitting in traffic in this Uber and like Dr. Charles is like, where are you? Like the game is about to start. And I'm sitting, you know, literally like a mile away from the ballpark. And I'm just sitting there and I'm tweeting, like, I can't believe I'm going to be late to my first Red Sox, like I'd never been to a Red Sox. I've been to other World Series games. I had been at the 2017 World Series the year before in, in LA, but I had never been to a Red Sox World Series game. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to be late to this game. I got there like right at the beginning of the first inning and looking back on it now, sitting there for seven and a half hours in that seat. <laughs> I can't believe that I was like so freaked out about being late to what ended up being the longest game in postseason history. I I woke up the next morning at 11.45 a.m. and I was like, I don't even know what happened last night. I, I it was like a fever dream. Yeah, we win two. They lose game uh, three. They this lost is, three, so they, and then they, they won. Lost three and then they were down a lot in four, and then New Orleans and Pierce Homer. So you don't remember. So I meant three. So three, three is the long. Yeah, yeah so three is the long one where Evaldi we went longer than Porcello, and Porcello was yeah. the starter. My brother and I did the same thing. We, we took an Uber and we were at the base of Chavez Ravine. And I was like, we're getting out, we'll walk. And he's, his fiance lives in LA. And he was like, it's a long walk. I was like, we'll be fine. And like halfway up, I literally, it was like, where's the base camp? I thought I was like, oh yeah, like Mount Everest. I was like, go on and then leave me here. Funniest thing I've ever done is left Dodger Stadium after a Grateful Dead, like a dead and company show. It was July 2018, and it was 107 degrees that entire weekend. And I was at the concert with my then boyfriend and his parents. And we decided like the Uber situation, the setup is terrible. You're never going to find your Uber. Someone's going to take it and like take it all the way to like Inglewood. And then you're going to get charged for it. So we're just going to walk. And I was like, are you sure you want to walk like all the way down to sunset? Like to get an Uber, you know, there's like a bazillion stoned out of their mind, dead heads doing the same yeah. thing. Like it's not going to work. We walked three miles after a dead show and it was like, you know, midnight and it was still a hundred degrees outside. All right. Well, so we're going to, we're going to wrap up because we took up so much of your time and we appreciate it. And I could literally talk to you guys for like 17 we're hours, but obviously, um, truly, truly busy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I did just want to ask really quickly about the glove because, um, I thought that was a particularly beautiful piece of work that you guys did. And 
Robert Redford narrated it and your father wrote it. So, you know, baseball to me has always been, and clearly for you guys too, it's, it's so much a sport that's about family. Um, you know, it's rooted in being passed down from generations. And you've talked about your dad taking you to Fenway. My grandfather snuck my dad out of school for the 1967 world series to see Yastrzemski. So what was it like to work with your dad on a piece about baseball, considering how much family and baseball go together? I, I just thought it was beautiful. Uh, so family and baseball, baseball and family, we're like obsessive baseball family. We Same. Around the baseball calendar. I would kind of go that piece was actually, I think, for opening day. Um, Mike wrote that for, I think, Daily Beast. And a guy at ESPN who's uh, no longer there, John Walsh, got in touch and said, this would be a fantastic essay. And we're like, okay, but Mike wrote it. And he's like, yeah, that's why you guys should make it. And they end up ESPN hooking up Robert Redford to do the voiceover. Um, and it was just, it was a little bit awkward because you're way over your head. You're with a much more talented person in, in your father to start and then secondarily obviously or primarily Robert Redford and we did this voiceover session like just remote just like we're doing this podcast and it was a fantastic we have we actually kept the tape with uh Redford was amazing and ended up doing a bunch of different takes and talked about baseball for like an hour um but that piece is I don't know if they still run it but it's one of the it's one of the quickest kit pieces we ever made Redford's voice Mike's words but I think we had two days to make it and Colin filmed all the B-roll, most of the shots you see, uh, he filmed in Central Park in New York City and a little bit on Kid Cotton, right? Yeah. 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 Just alone. Yeah. That was, it was, uh, yeah, it was strange because it's like, it's not only that you're working with your dad, but you're working with like his past too, because he was in a movie with Robert Redford in uh, called The Candidate in like 1972. He's got like a bit part in it because um, he, he had been working for uh, Ed Muskie. He was like a, like a uh, you know, basically a gopher and he had just done some stuff on it and he, he has a bit part in it. So it goes all the way back to, to that. So you're really like not only working with him, but you're working with like the, the breadth of like his life. It's, it was, uh, it was interesting, but it was a, it was pretty easy to have a conversation about baseball. Yeah, I'm I love Robert Redford. All the President's Men is like one of my favorite movies of all time. I watch it like at least three times a year. One of the most baseball fans too, and an awesome guy. Yeah. Oh my god, so cool! And I mean, your father obviously like he is so renowned, and he obviously inspires you. I mean, my father inspires me. How much did he inspire your work in sports? I mean, growing up with a sports fan for a dad who just like took you to Fenway all the time, which is literally every Boston kid's dream to just be like, Hey, I'm taking you out of school and I'm taking you to Fenway. Quick, quick disclaimer. He is, does inspire us from out during the winter and during this time of the year, during fantasy baseball season, he's a tyrant. He's a size. Colin's the commissioner of our fantasy baseball league. There's 12 people in the league. We've known every single one except for two for over 25 years, for over 20 years, almost 25 years. Uh, these are guys from our little league team um, back in Concord, Massachusetts, from when we were like 10 years old. And we have a bunch of guys from that team uh, that are in this fantasy league. And Mike is – He was the coach of the team. He was the coach of the team. The other coach of the team is also on our fantasy league. But Collins, 
I don't know how he got this, but he's the commissioner. And he's uh, he's always dealing with it's a lot of like the guy is a lot of rule changes, requests, a lot of how come I can't. He chisels me on deals all the time. He is he is well. He's claiming that he we need another IL spot because all his his whole team's injured. How do you how many IL spots do you have? Four. He wants like Plenty he wants like COVID protocols for yeah, this. Yeah, he wants like six guys. He's like, look, I got two O's, which is in the ESPN fantasy game is. They have their own COVID protocol. He's like, that should be, I want two extra spots. And we're like, okay, kind of sounds like a good idea, but you're just saying this because your team right. needs two extra spots. It's not like magnanimous. It's just like a personal, it's like a personal like benefit kind of situation. Two or three. He's lost two championships. Two championships. And one of them was like by one point mismanagement. No, it was to me. Yes. He mismanagement. It's one of the greatest games of all time. But it was very dark. It was a dark weekend. <laughs> Charlie Blackman hit a, a cycle to he pulled ahead of me and then Trevor Bauer came out for a three <laughs> three inning save uh, on like September 28th 2018 and I won my championship ring fantasy baseball I have two rings I beat my dad I'm actually one of the great owners of the league maybe the greatest anyway yeah he was he's he was he's a great storyteller my dad and he's he's great at what he does and I think in terms of emulating him uh you know he's continuously continuously worked uh in his field for you know since he was 19 so i think i would love to be doing that yeah to answer the question seriously he had this job he doesn't we never really talked about his work i don't we still don't talk about his work um we have this immense hugely powerful connection around baseball and now our kids have that connection and so it just that's really the biggest one of the biggest things we got um in terms of working you know his advice is really just keep showing up just keep going that's keep going been my up. dad's advice my entire life is 90 percent of life is showing up so that's like our big thing and there's always another event you know keep you know it's a lot of baseball metaphors yeah a lot, oh, yeah. A lot of old durham lines throw in there you know you keep going with ballpark and get paid for it as a good daddy you know <laughs> Classic film. So um, kind of going along that, keep going forward. I mean, this is a pretty big deal for you guys, right? A, a Netflix film, docuseries. So you worked on it for quite a bit. Prior to this, you had done a bunch of sports stuff. So looking ahead, what's next? Like what's a passion project of yours that you guys would like to start working on or what's coming down the pipeline for you guys? Um, we have several true crime things we're developing, uh, so have to do with Massachusetts. I'm not going to get into all the details, but we also are like hugely connected to the game of baseball and just love the game of baseball. And I think we'd love to do, there's a few different really big projects on controversial baseball players, kind of like Alex Rodriguez, who we're very good that I would like to try to do something on like a bigger, deeper dive on. And we're, we're actually working on two other baseball projects as well, scripted projects, but they're not tied up yet, so I won't say anything. But um, baseball is always something we're working on, and we're always trying to work on projects for Major League Baseball or for teams um, and tell baseball stories and, and try to bring the game to a different audience and a new audience and a younger audience. You know, well, what we all kind of talk about doing around the game. Um, Sounds like a stump speech. It is a stump speech. <laughs> the practice that I'm reading no, but it's, ne it's necessary. I mean, think about how much baseball needs children and they don't. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, like that's I, like I a whole other podcast for... we could have you guys on for. Oh, no, I, I always say about baseball, I'd like to say 
like to blue in the face that baseball should not be competing with the NFL, that it should compete competing with FIFA or something like that. It's an international game. It's in Colombia. It's in Venezuela. It's in Japan. It's in South Korea. Um, it's making inroads into other South American countries. It's uh, in Central America. It's everywhere, not only around the world, but it's also like in every single town in America. So it should really be like a like completely saturated, you know, sport in terms of its accessibility and less corporate and stuff like that. But uh, oh, 100%. Yeah. And you guys like have that interesting perspective coming from like a, a media standpoint and just like the content that's out there about the game too. But, and you're right. And like also baseball is just so weaved with like history and from yeah. a storytelling standpoint. I'll, I'll, that's what we want to last thing to say about baseball, but when you go to an NFL game, there's not a more boring experience in the world. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> Everyone we talk to says that they want to watch the NFL at home. Covering? Covering NFL games during the pandemic from my couch is a, having the broadcast is such an asset to me as a reporter and a writer, like just doing my job. And I can't understand why as a fan, anyone wouldn't want to just crush beers and wings on their couch and listen to no, Jim Nance and Tony I Romo. It's the reverse for baseball. Like I yes. love televised baseball, but it's an acquired taste. And yes, like, uh, like baseball home- is about the, the ballpark experience and it's especially okay. about the ballpark experience rooted in the nostalgia of remembering what it was like to go to a ballpark as a kid. Like when I go to Fenway park, I feel the same way I felt when I was four years old you walk up the ramp and you see the green monster silhouetted against the blue sky. And you're like, Holy crap, where am I? What is this amazing, like Narnia esque place? It's that's, that's what baseball is. It's not about, you know, I mean, <laughs> you're I so love romantic. I know I love, I love OB There's, and Eck and Remy, but you go to Fenway park and it's unlike anything else in the entire world. There was, there was this, actually it's in a grateful dead talk. There's, they are questioning a road manager and he's like, it's such a unique thing to America that people like just get on the road and they go to try to find America. It's totally odd that you'd like nobody from England's doing like, let's go find England or whatever. And I feel like that the kind of, the kind of idea people have is like us as like, like Americans, you get on the road and like you like see different places, go to different states. It's so ingrained into what baseball is. It's not, it's literally in every town at every level, or it yeah. should be. It's, you know, we, got, we got a lot of different stories about different parts of the country, baseball. Remember the story we heard in Minnesota? The guy, we were in Minnesota one time and the guy's telling us a story about, I, think, and I might get this wrong because I'm not from there, but it's about Tomball, which is their kind of, uh their uh park league and he was talking about i think the name of the team was mears corner i wrote it down and they were like legendary amateur baseball team and this guy was taught this was at the twin stadium he was talking about this team like they were you know the globetrotters or like just one of these iconic teams of his youth but he'd obviously had this connection to this little town somewhere out there in, that i'd never been to and this baseball team and that's what i think baseball gives you that football Again, I like football, but I just it's never it, it never has that level if you, of connection. If you had to go to if you had to go to one baseball event, what would it be? Yeah, you can go it's to our any, podcast now. It's our yeah. podcast now. What, now the turntables turn, huh? Yeah. Why am I I keep pointing into the camera? I want, uh, I want you. We went to opening day at Funway this year, me and Al. And um, you know, it was the first game obviously that fans were allowed since 2019 where I was at the last game of the season, which we had no idea was going to end up being the last game for over a year. And all winter long, like we would hang out, we would walk around Fenway. And there was one day where like, we just, I walked up to like the brick wall of like 
gate A area of Fenway. And I was like, let me in. I was like almost crying. And so we went on opening day and she looks at me and I'm just like sobbing through my mask during the pregame ceremony. So I was like, we're finally home. I was like, so it was emotional. so dramatic. It was so dramatic. But it wasn't like intentionally dramatic. It was just that like, I cry at Fenway Park at least five times a year. I mean, I bawled my eyes out at David Ortiz's retirement ceremony. Like keeping six feet apart really helped out this scenario where you're crying. Yeah, I know. No one could see me. I had the, I bought, I literally tweeted before the game. I was like, just picked up my waterproof mascara at the drugstore. So I'm good to go for opening day. Like, What's your answer though? This is a hard one because I don't want to go with like a cliche World Series one. Yeah, Um, I would go to the Koshin in in Japan, like any baseball event, like the the high school baseball tournament there. That's crazy. I'll answer. I didn't. Go ahead, Nick. Colin wants to go to the Koshin. I would go to theoretical, hypothetical Red Sox, Yankees in Rome. No, Nick. That's well, like in the Coliseum. Not a real thing yet. Yeah, no, that's not I'm a real thing. Like some gladiator shit. Oh, could they? No, they're not going to play a baseball game in the Coliseum. Yeah, one baseball just topples the whole thing in like a circle, kind of like yeah. that Hercules thing when he knocks over all the pillars. Hundreds of years of history just crumbles. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, like something that actually would take place. You could, you could do it. Someone hits a moonshot oh. and knocks over the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's not leaning anymore. It's just down yeah. well why don't you guys answer and then maybe i'll correct that answer um okay i have one actually so um this year team israel is going to be in the tokyo olympics for baseball for the first time ever and it's the first time that they have had it's like it's been over 30 years since they've had qualified for a team sport for the olympics and i i'm jewish i grew up part of my life in israel one of my closest friends is on the baseball team for the olympics ty kelly former major leaguer i would give anything just as like a proud jewish person to be able to go and see my people represented in the olympics especially with the history of jews and israelis and anti-semitism in the olympics you know with um, the Berlin Olympics, and then with the capturing and killing of those Israeli athletes in the 1972, Munich. yeah, the Munich Olympics. 72, yeah. It's always Germany, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just anytime I can, you know, kind of the way we talked about family and baseball, you know, I grew up in a very Jewish family. My dad's a rabbi. So anytime I can marry baseball and Judaism, it's like, that's, peak baseball that's like peak my life existence for me um so that's my answer and you get ready to go yeah that's a good answer all right next up good luck it's your podcast now (laughs) (laughs) so can it can can it be like a historical one like a thing in the past you gotta come up with something good oh damn i didn't know we could do historical if it was historical i would want to do like you know ted williams homering in his final at bat it wasn't his nick yours wasn't historical it was a no i'm going with theirs i'm going with (laughs) gabby's i think i so thinking back to like being at a ballpark and like being at a game i'm I want it to be an experience where like watching, I was just like ready to run through a brick wall on my couch. So, oh my God, what would this have been like in person? And I really think back to one thing that I think was like so pivotal. It's such a stupid answer too, because one of the answers I'm going to give, the Joe Kelly fight against the Yankees, 
in 2018 like I my hot take is that that moment right there won the world series and just from there they just went on an absolute tear and I'm just like can you imagine what the ballpark was like that day inside Boston and just how nuts they went and then also um if we're going by that logic then David Ortiz this is our fucking city that's 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 so I was so I was saying in 2013 I would have loved to see that speech as well as his was it a grand slam that ended up in the bullpen and the cop tigers was, tigers uh, bullpen tigers cop yes. yes yeah that I have the t-shirt of that moment with the cop and then the center fielder's legs like and I don't know if you you because I was at all of those games <laughs> all right oh. I aspire to live well. my life to be as cool as a barnacle that's that's well, my new oh. life goal so all right. I mean, that legally, I think I snuck into the stadium for two of the first, so keep that up. Okay, I love well, hearing those stories about people sneaking in because I have a friend that did that that did that for the fucking 2013 World Series, and it's like, like how does like how do you pull that off? The first, I mean, to be fair, the first night I met my now boyfriend of almost two years, he took me into Fenway Park at 2:30 in the morning. And just let me stand there and stare at this quiet, empty, dark ballpark and just kind of feel the ghosts. And he used to work for the Red Sox and um, he had to, we had gone out for drinks and then he had left his, you know, work bag and the ballpark. So he just kind of, we went back in to get it, but he let me just kind of stand up and look at it kind of just like from the state street pavilion, just kind of stare. And um, dude, if you want to impress a girl, that is like, I wouldn't day. say I wouldn't say that generally. I think that we're a weird we're a weird type of girl. I mean, <laughs> I don't think most girls would would be like okay. Well, take me most home. girls have terrible taste then. <laughs> I don't know if you guys want to get into nonfiction in the future, but if you wanted to make like a Forrest Gump esque story, but it's like somebody who randomly happens to be at so many great baseball moments in Boston history, I would watch the hell out of that. You know, just like he's at like Babe Ruth's like, you know, call his shot kind of game. He's at Ted Williams final home run, homering in his final at bat game. He's at Yastrzemski's, uh, you know, the moment he solidifies his triple crown, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that oh, would be like. Hmm? He's tired. Yeah. He's 120 years old. Well, he. I think I think the sad ending is he dies before they reverse the curse. But he's lived through, you know, my great uncle is 102 years old. He was born in June 1918. And he said to me a few years ago, I was 86 years old before I saw a World Series that I could remember because, you know, obviously 1918, he's like three months old. Said now I've lived through five. I don't need anything more in life. And he'll be 103 in a month. So I have one more. One more for uncle. All right. Well, this was fun. This was amazing. Thank you guys so much. And can you just tell everybody, you know, where they can find you on social and obviously check out This is a Robbery on Netflix. Usually we ask people their favorite sports memory, but I think we more than covered that. We didn't cover any of the favorites, actually. We just kind of covered some of the topical. But um, we are at Barnacle Bros on Twitter and um, I think at Barnacle Brothers on Instagram. You can watch This is a Robbery on Netflix streaming now. Well, so guys, thank you so much for tuning in. This was quite literally one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Um, You can follow Girl at the Game on every single platform. um, And we still don't have a sign off. So thank you for tuning in. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Let's go get a shot.